Chapter Five of the Short Line War by Merwin Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five Tuesday Evening. Harvey West liked to be comfortable. His rooms were in a quiet apartment house on the west side, within easy reach of the Metropolitan Elevated, and not far from the big house where Jim Weeks held bachelor sway. Harvey was not a musician, but a good piano stood in his sitting-room. He had accumulated a few etchings and two bronzes, and on the center table were piled the latest books. Harvey read these about as he listened to grand opera. He recognized that a man should keep in touch with such things. In a vague way he enjoyed them, but he was too honest to cultivate the glib generalities that give so many men a rating as connoisseurs of art, music, and literature. Harvey liked action. Business appealed to him, anything with movement and excitement. Then, after the fever of the day, he was drawn to a few friends and a good cigar. But back behind his straightforward democratic temperament, there was a dash of good blood, the sifting down of generations of gentlemen and gentlewomen that accounted for Harvey's inherent good taste. He could not criticize the technique of a picture, but he never selected a poor one and the few books he really liked were the kind one can read once a year with profit. Early on this Tuesday evening, Harvey was trying to read, but his eyes would wander and his brow contract. At intervals, he would turn in his chair and endeavor to bring his thoughts back to the book. Finally, he shut it with a bang, and walking to the window, stood looking out over the city. It had been a hard day for Harvey. He had passed hours waiting to learn the result of Jim's efforts to head off McNally, the news that C. and S. C. would undoubtedly control the Tillman City stock at election had been closely followed by the discovery of unexpected strength in the opposition directors. People used to say of Jim that he was never so happy as when fighting in his last ditch, but Harvey derived no pleasure from such operations. On this occasion he was particularly troubled. He felt that his failure to tend to business the preceding afternoon had contributed largely to the loss of Tillman City. And worst of all, what a fool Miss Porter must think him. The boulevard below was hedged with two rows of gas lamps, which converged far away to the south. Sounds of the street floated up to him, the clatter of hoofs on the asphalt, disjointed conversations from wheelmen, juvenile calls and whistles. Harvey looked down at the strolling crowds on the sidewalk and felt lonely, he turned away from the window and took a cigar from the hospitable box on the mantel. Near the box was a Kodak picture of Miss Porter, which he had taken some time before. He held the picture to the light and gazed at it earnestly. You had a fine laugh over me yesterday, didn't you, when your father told you all about it? Harvey's big sitting-room was popular. His friends had the comfortable habit of dropping in at almost any hour of the day or night, sure of a hearty welcome. But tonight the thought of visitors caused him to replace the picture suddenly, seize his hat and stick, and start out for somewhere. At first he entertained a dim notion of going to Lincoln Park, so he took the elevated downtown and started north on the Clark Street cable. But as the car jolted along, he remembered that the band did not play Tuesday evenings. He might take in the electric fountain— but in the crowd you couldn't go about and look at people without being in other people's way. Harvey was fond of the great public, but he liked to hold himself in the background. He rode past the park under the long rows of elms, 
gazing absently at the thronging walk where the middle strata of north side humanity take their evening promenade passing the park he decided to go on to the bismarck where he could be among people and yet remain alone a few minutes before eight he walked between the brown dragons which guard the entrance and crossed the raised pavilion between the street and the garden at the head of the stairs he paused a moment then he turned aside and seated himself at a table nearby where he could lean against the railing and overlook the crowd below it was still somewhat early and the long rows of white tables stood vacant by daylight the trees in a summer garden wear a homesick look but to-night the festooned incandescent lights spread a soft yellow light through the foliage already thinned though the night was warm by the touch of september while high up on their white poles the big arcs threw down a weird blue glare casting a confusion of half-opaque shadows upon the graveled earth far to the front was the stage with its half-dome the double bass was tuning his instrument a few others were sorting music or running over difficult passages by this time the crowd was pouring in and spreading among the tables harvey leaned back and watched the almost unbroken line that moved from the gate to the steps there were a great many family groups with here and there a chaperoned party from the suburbs a sound of scraping and squealing and grunting from the stage announced the orchestral preliminaries there was a scattering fusillade of applause as the tall conductor appeared looking through the trees harvey could see him wrap his stand and raise both arms the concert was on harvey's glance shifted back to the stairway and he started on the bottom step looking about for a vacant table was william c porter behind him standing with head thrown back was miss katherine porter for a moment she looked at the shifting scene before her harvey noted with hungry eyes the poise of her figure then she turned deliberately and bowed to Harvey with a bright smile. A little later, as Harvey sat alone listening to the music, Mr. Porter appeared, picking his way toward the center aisle. Harvey watched him idly. He finally reached the stairway and came straight to Harvey's table. "'Good evening, Mr. West,' he said, holding out his hand. "'Won't you join us? We shall be here for an hour, anyway.' Harvey rose and looked across the diagonal line of tables. Miss Porter was leaning forward with a smile. Harvey's mind had been made up, but he changed it and followed Mr. Porter. Catherine received him brightly and immediately put him at ease. For the time he forgot that Mr. Porter and he were nominal enemies. Mr. Porter talked entertainingly of the people about them, a subject which Harvey could continue with intelligence and he was gratified to note the interest in the daughter's eyes as he commented on the oddities of human character. They were looking at a party of Germans who sat listening to the music with the stolid interest of the race, when Mr. Porter rose and beckoned. Catherine nodded to someone behind Harvey. A moment later he was shaking hands with Mr. McNally. "'We've been watching for you for some time,' said Mr. Porter, as McNally took the vacant chair." "'Have you?' McNally smiled easily. "'I wish you had said that, Miss Porter.' "'Oh, Mr. McNally, you know I was hoping for you.' Harvey's eyes betrayed him, for she added in a bantering tone, "'We must say such things to Mr. McNally, Mr. West. "'If we don't, he gets simply unbearable.' McNally looked at her with an amused expression. Evidently they understood each other. 
As the banter continued, Harvey began to feel uncomfortable. He tried to listen to the orchestra, which was playing a lively march. "'Good, isn't it?' said Miss Porter to Harvey. "'Splendid,' he replied. "'Do you think so?' observed Mr. McNally. "'Seems to me Bung's a little off tonight. Too much drum. Queer motions, hasn't he?' Herr Bung's motions were queer. He was very tall and spare, with an angular, smooth-shaven face, and with a luxuriant growth of hair that waved and flopped in the gentle breeze. His long arms were principally elbow, and they swayed and crooked and jerked as though he were pulling the music down out of the air. At times, when he turned to the belated second violins, his gaunt profile would appear in silhouette against a glare of electric light. "'Do you know,' said McNally, fingering his program, "'Bung ought to stick to this kind of stuff.' Last week I heard him play some of the Queen Mab music, and it was willful slaughter. Poor old Berlioz would have sobbed aloud if he had heard it. Harvey felt awkward. He could not follow McNally's comments, and it humiliated him. Miss Porter was quick to observe his silence and endeavored to draw him into the conversation, while Mr. McNally seemed determined to hold the reins. There was some good-natured fencing when Mr. Porter rose. "'You'll excuse me, Mr. West,' he said pleasantly. "'We have an engagement for the latter part of the evening.' "'Yes,' added his daughter. "'We promised to go out to Edgewater, the saddle and cycle, you know.' Harvey bowed and stood immovable, as father, daughter, and Mr. McNally left the garden. She had given him a quick glance, and he wondered what it meant. He sat down and absently broke the straws in his glass.' The orchestra had stopped, and a buzz of conversation floated into the foliage. White-clad waiters bustled about with trays piled high. After another number, he started for home, blue and angry. As he left the elevated and walked down Ashland Avenue, he saw that Jim's house was lighted up, and he crossed over. Jim and he were better friends than their relative positions indicated. Neither had family ties, and Jim's interest in the younger man was perhaps the nearest approach to sentiment he had felt for years. He seldom openly showed his regard, but Harvey was perfectly conscious of it, and he valued it highly. Jim was sitting alone at the table in the library. He greeted Harvey by tipping back and waving toward a seat. The table was littered with papers. "'How are you?' said Jim. "'We've stolen a march on you.' Harvey smiled and drew himself wearily into a chair at the other end of the table. "'What is it?' he asked. "'C&SC again?' Jim nodded, and drawing out his cigar case, he took one and tossed the case down to Harvey, then said, "'Yes, and I think we've got him down. We've issued some more stock.' He leaned on the table and spoke in a confidential tone. "'And I reckon Porter'll be doing a hornpipe when he finds it out.' "'Who took it?' asked Harvey." "'Spencer Myers and I. The books haven't been closed, you know.' Harvey blew out a thin cloud of smoke and looked at it meditatively. Nine thousand shares,' continued Jim. "'If there's anything he can do now, he's welcome to try.' "'Do you think he will try?' "'Oh, yes. He'll come at us with something or other. But he can't do a thing.' There was a long silence, then Harvey said, "'You didn't pay cash for the stock.' Ten percent, Jim replied. Harvey fingered his cigar. Every new move of Jim's bewildered him. Jim's imperturbability and his eagerness for a fight 
where some men would be discouraged, were qualities that Harvey was slow in acquiring. His admiration for Jim amounted almost to reverence. Perhaps he had realized the bitter fighting that was yet to come. If he could have foreseen the part that he was to play with zeal and judgment, he would have been even more bewildered. But Harvey was plucky enough. It needed only the right circumstances to develop him. "'If he does fight,' said Jim, breaking the silence, "'if he succeeds in landing on us, why, then, look out for war. "'I'll put my last cent into M&T before I'll give him a chance at it.' "'Is he likely to grab the road?' "'Maybe he'll try, but I'll have five hundred men with guns in his way. "'I'll tell you, West, I'm not going to give in. I never have yet.' "'No,' said Harvey thoughtfully. "'I don't believe you have.' "'And he added,' I saw Porter tonight. Where? Up at the Bismarck. McNally was with him. Anybody else? His daughter. Pretty girl, I hear. Yes, Harvey spoke slowly. She is a very pretty girl. Her father seems to be a gentleman. Oh, Porter's all right. He's doing what most any man in his place would do. It's business. There's nothing personal in it. "'I suppose not,' Harvey replied. "'It's still a little odd to me. "'I'm afraid I want to break his head.' "'Jim laughed. "'You'll get over that. "'I reckon you haven't got anything against his daughter.' "'Perhaps not,' said Harvey. "'But that's different.' "'Oh, is it?' "'Harvey sat for a moment without reply. "'Then he tossed his half-smoked cigar into the ashtray and rose. "'Don't go, West. "'I shall be up for a long while.' "'I'm tired,' Harvey replied. "'I need sleep. "'Good night.' "'Harvey walked home slowly. "'Once in his room, he did not light up. "'Instead, he drew an easy chair to the window "'and stretched out where he could feel the breeze. "'It had been a strange evening. "'He went back over the conversation in the Bismarck. "'Catherine had seemed even prettier than usual. "'But before every picture of her "'rose the calm, smiling face of McNally.' McNally with his pudgy hands and his cool blue eyes, his ease and his well-placed comment. Harvey rested an elbow on the sill and looked out the window. The crowds were gone now. No sound came save the rustle of the leaves and the occasional rumble of the elevated trains. The moon was clouded, but over the trees the stars were out, as clear and soft as on other evenings that had not seemed so dreary. He turned away and walked over to the mantel where Catherine's pitcher leaned against the wall. He found it without striking a light, and brought it to the window. By the dim light from the street and the sky, he could see her face in faint outline. "'Well, Miss Catherine,' he said, looking into the shadowy eyes, "'I guess Jim Weeks isn't the only fighter here.'" End of chapter 5